Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Napa know-how. At Napa Auto Parts stores and Napa Auto Care centers, get a $25 prepaid Visa card when you get any Napa automotive battery. It's the best deal for some of the best batteries from some of the best car people around. But we might be a little partial. Anywho, pick up any Napa automotive battery and save 25 bucks. Do it yourself or have it done for you. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. At participating Napa Auto Parts stores and Napa Auto Care centers. While supplies last, offer ends 831 that little chico pit boom, Mr. 305, but it said Mr. Worldwide. You already know what it is. Listen to my new podcast from Negative to Positive. Subscribe today. Now, part of the things that we're doing over here at Negative to Positive is encouraging people to change their lives, change the things that are within their power. I want to thank our good friends at KFC for helping me bring this to you. Feed your whole crew with KFC. Let's go. I can get the KFC bucket of chicken, and you know, that's fire. Now, Bobo, you know that you can get that mac and cheese, that mashed potato, gravy, those biscuits. Now, that's that's trouble right there. That is fire right there. You know, on Negative to Positive, we're always talking about striving and achievement. And, and the Colonel Sanders story is, is a story that inspired me since I was 10 years old. Look how our life comes full circle. Now I'm talking about Colonel Sanders and Kentucky Fried Chicken and how much I love it. <laughs> Listen to my new podcast from Negative to Positive. Check out the vodcast. Subscribe today. Apple Podcast. Podcast One. Spotify. Hey guys, what's going on? I'm Ben Bateman. And I'm Andrew Guy. And we are the Action Guys! Yes! <laughs> Alright. Trying to lean into it even more. Yeah, there were some Twitter comments and some YouTube comments about us being tools. Well, well guess what? <laughs> you're goddamn right we are. We're you're two goddamn tools right. talking about movies. Yeah, we're two tools talking about uh, the three amigos of cinema today. The episode today, we're going to be ranking the three amigos of cinema. Um, as I mentioned, my name is uh, Ben Bateman. That's Andrew Guy. And we have a lot of conversations to have today. This is all spawned from the fact that a brand new Hellboy movie <laughs> hit theaters in this last week. It did hit theaters. Physically abused theaters. Uh, it was... Supposed to be one of the worst things that's ever happened. It's almost it, like it felt like it came out of a cavity somewhere, dropping slowly from the sky, <laughs> and right? then just landed on you. Yeah, it, I haven't seen it, Nor so I can't. I can't so speak I, on it. Yeah, so that's a tool that you be do because awesome. I haven't seen yeah. it. So. <laughs> yeah, uh, the three amigos. You know, we've got uh, Alejandro G. Inaritu, we've got Guillermo del Toro, and we also have Alfonso Cuarón. Cuarón. It has been Cuarón. <laughs> uh, and th- this whole thing with Hellboy coming out got us thinking about like films that are directed by one great director, yeah, or even a good director. And then the second film, or even or even the first film, was directed by a lesser director, and then it's taken over. The point is, the director changes at some point in the franchise, and it gets better or worse because of it. Yeah, and I think you know the most interesting thing about these guys. If, if, if you guys are listening or watching this, and, and you don't know what we're talking about, you don't know the significance of these three guys. Because I would still argue, despite how much critical acclaim these guys have. All three of them are not household names. 100%. It's debatable if even one of them is a household name, and that's only Guillermo, maybe. Yeah, I think Guillermo is the closest thing to a household name. But I do know, and, and I always use this reference, my, my lovely mother, who yeah. was just here in L.A. a couple weeks ago, I ask her because she is, you know, she's, she's 70 years old. She loves movies. Her and her, her husband go to movies all the time together. Yep. 
But if you ask her a name, you're like, do you know who this person is? And they don't. Usually that's a pretty good gauge as if they're like a true A-list celebrity. And, right. And I don't think she would know any of these. I bet if I said Guillermo del Toro, she might be like, oh, I've heard of him, maybe. Right. And he's he's well known because of the style of movies that he's made. But the significance of these three guys, if you don't know, is that in the last six years, five, count them, five of the last six Best Director Oscar Awards have gone to this trio of guys. Yeah. That's unprecedented. That is unheard of. They are good friends that have worked on each other's films in the vein of Brian De Palma, Steven Spielberg, Francis Ford Coppola, and George Lucas back in the 70s. These guys are a trio just like that. They, They are close. They see each other's early cuts. They help each other on projects. And... That trio has accounted for over 80% of the last six. Like, that is just unbelievable. Yeah, the only one they did not win was the best director that went towards Damien Chazelle for La La Land. For La La Land. They didn't have a movie come out that year. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I don't think they did, which is also very interesting that there wasn't actually one of their films in contention, I believe. Yeah, cause, uh, uh, yeah, definitely. That's, that's 100% the yeah, case. Yeah, that's true, because Revenant and Birdman were the year before. So, uh, we're going to get into this conversation. Like I said, you know, Hellboy 1 and 2 were directed by Guillermo del Toro. The third one comes out, it's directed by someone else. It's supposed to kind of be a travesty. Now, Sicario 1, a film that we love, directed by Denis Villeneuve, yeah. written by Taylor Sheridan. Yep. The second film is not directed by Denis, and it, it's directed by Stefano Solima. Is that the, the, guy that did, um, the guy that did Gamora, the TV series? Series, I think right. right and and he does a fine enough job he's yep. a newer director he's not a he's not a visionary like Denis is he's no. not he doesn't have that eye like Denis does another one that we talked about before is for instance we've got Steve Jobs versus Jobs you've got right. one of them is directed by yeah, yeah, one was directed by obviously David. Or Steve Jobs directed by Danny Boyle. Yeah, I was going to say. And then Jobs is directed by I don't have it written down because yeah, it's that irrelevant. Exactly, yeah. we didn't write so. any of these other people down. And then actually, we have another person in the studio today. It's Michael Blankenship. Michael, you are working on Action Industries with us. You are actually running our YouTube page, which you know he let us know our YouTube page, guys. YouTube.com slash Action Industries. Our videos, the full episodes of Tags, have more viewers that are not subscribed than are subscribed. So if you're watching the videos. Hit that subscribe button, It's guys. a big deal for us to be able to keep building this brand for you guys to – when we when we shout it out on here to say go follow, go subscribe, like our ability to build this thing the way we want to is based on that level, that subscription. So please do that. Michael, what do you have to say for yourself? Uh, thanks for so much for having me, guys. Um, it's an honor. I mean um – yeah, I mean, not much else to say right now. <laughs> yeah, no, dude, on, honestly, we're really happy to have you here. And you actually mentioned in our kind of our pre-production meeting, you talked to me about the Thor franchise, and you were saying the first one's directed by Brana. Yep. Great director. Stylized, very much so. Yeah, and one of the greatest Shakespearean actors of our time. A pretty good film. Then you've got The Dark World that's directed by uh, Alan uh, Taylor. Alan Taylor, yeah. which I, I, didn't, I don't really like the first two Thors at all, but then you've got the third one, right? Yeah. Uh, how do you even say his name? Taika Waititi. Yeah. yeah. Uh, hey, I got it. Okay. Taika Waititi, I think he grabs this franchise and he runs with it. Yeah. We get the best Thor movie in Ragnarok, someone that actually truly understands what we as an audience want and yeah. what Thor can offer with the heart, with the comedy, everything. So, that being said, this conversation starts us with, well, what does it take to be a great director and who are the greatest directors right now? Yeah. These are the three greatest directors kind of in the Academy's eye at the moment. Yeah. I mean, they, they have accounted for an unreal amount of acclaim in the last few years. So we have a few different conversations that we are going to have today. Now, the main conversation today is we are going to be dissecting the careers of Alejandro Gonzalez Anaritu, Alfonso Cuaron, and Guillermo del Toro. We are going to be talking about which of them we feel is the best director, uh, which of them we feel is going to be relevant 25 years, et cetera, et cetera. That is today's topic. Before we get fully into that conversation, a couple things I want to do. 
Yeah. Uh, big shout out. You can find Team Action Show on Twitter. That's our Twitter. You guys can find on Instagram at Action Industries. Facebook, there's a there's an Action Industries page. And, of course, we mentioned the YouTube. Yep. Um, there are full episodes of this show. So if you guys are hearing this right now, this is a clip you're probably hearing on the Collider Podcast Network, which we are very thankful that posts our show. Yeah. You guys can get full video episodes available on the Action Industries YouTube every single Friday if you're a patron, patreon.com slash teamaction, or the following Tuesday, full episodes for free. They go up for you guys. But, of course, the full audio goes up on the Movie Talk feed by Collider every single Friday. Um, so check that out if you just want to listen to the full thing. You don't have to pay anything. You can just listen to it on yeah. Fridays. Apple One, Podcast One, Spotify. Hit download. Leave a comment. Let us know what you think about what we're doing. It really helps us. It really helps Collider. And it really helps Michael Blankenship run our YouTube page when you guys hit subscribe. So do that for us. Did you? <laughs> Michael posted a clip of uh, one of our last episodes. Nothing to do with the movie we were talking about. Just talking about the movie Prisoners. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, I loved it. I watched it several times. Us talking about Prisoners was as enjoyable to me as the movie Prisoners, which I like a lot. I love Prisoners. I like talking to you about anything that Hugh Jackman does really more than watching Hugh Jackman movies at this point. I, I'm such a fan. Did you see the clip of his, his one-man show he's doing now, The Greatest the greatest Showman? And he's like – there was a performance of The Greatest Show. He, he's doing it by himself? I, I don't know if it's a one-man show, but it's like the Hugh Jackman hour basically. He's doing like this Broadway performance where he, has, he does like songs from various movies he's been in. You're like kind of asking me if I've heard about it because you're like, because I've got tickets. No, no <laughs> I saw like a clip of him doing The Greatest Show live. That guy. He's such a performer. He's such a talent. He's such a talent. I looked at his Instagram the other day, and he was trying on new tap shoes that he'd gotten. Oh, that's great. Yeah, such a talent. Did you see the video of him receiving the award by the Guinness Book of World Records? Such a talent. <laughs> the longest. He's he's the longest running Marvel actor. He and Patrick Stewart get it together. Oh, that's amazing. So Guinness walks in with like the framed picture, and they're like, "He's like, this is great." And then like, and then like the the, the video comes up, and it's like Patrick Stewart. He's like, "Hello, good boy." He's like, oh, "I love you," and I was like, "I love you both." <laughs> Dude, I would geek out so hard if I saw Hugh Jackman and Patrick Stewart talking to each other, and then Ian McKellen walked in the uh, room. I wouldn't even know I what to do evaporate. it myself. Yeah. Uh, all right, guys. So I'm that getting, is I'm getting warm. Yeah, I know. I'm getting a little hot <laughs> talking about Hugh here. So, three amigos of cinema right now. Let's talk a little bit about their careers. Talk a little bit about when they came on the map. The first one for me. Uh, I mean, actually, technically, it was it was Del Toro. It was watching Mimic back in the late '90s. I, I mean, you know it's like me, '97 probably. I think I like weird horror movies. I watched a lot of like older horror movies or campy horror movies when I was in college. And Mimic was, uh, I mean, it wasn't like a campy or a bad one at the time when I was growing up. It was supposed to actually be pretty legitimate. But that was the first time I had ever seen any of their work. Blade Two, yeah, was when I was like. Oh, I like I like this movie. I didn't know I didn't know anything about directors though at that time. Yeah, I mean, like so so Del Toro, like he doesn't really get noticed for for Kronos or for Mimic. Like you know, Mimic is a real movie with a real studio. The Devil's Backbone is kind of in the same. There was like that whole sort of run of like horror retreads that yeah. came around around that time, and I guess every era sort of has that. But like that's the one with is Rob Zombie in that movie? Is that what it is? I'm not the Devil's Rejects. Is that the that's one I'm Devil's of? Rejects? That's, okay, yeah, that's the one that Rob Zombie directs. Yeah, yeah. So Devil's Backbone, though, I, I remember it coming out. I remember like it's that era of like Blair Witches a year or two before right, it, right? Right. And just sort of horror movies in general. And I, I do remember that movie coming out, but that it was a, a blip on the radar. But it was that was kind of Del Toro had kind of found his place in yeah. American cinema, being like, okay. So we all know him and his monsters and how much he loves creating these creatures. Shape of Water, I think, is the culmination of his monster love and his love for love stories kind yeah. of coming together in one film. But you see here with Mimic, Devil's Backbone, and Blade 2, he was like, okay, 
okay, I can go a little dark. I can go like the comic book route so I can start bringing my monsters to life in America. He can kind of do the genre stuff. And yes. That's, that's like where he really excelled. It's like he had a real eye. He had a real eye for like action and this sort of campy horror creature stuff. And, and it, he was really good at it. I mean there's a, there's a real market for that. People love that stuff. 100%. And he captured that. And I think what's really interesting is that you know we talked a lot about Hellboy, uh, the first one and the second one on our episode of Action Movie Anatomy on Popcorn Talk Network. We do an hour-long show you guys can check out every week. But um, – his eye for the monsters in Hellboy 1 uh, and, and sort of the comedy, it really was suited to his style. Yes. Um, and Blade 2 in, in similar ways, you know, vampires. But it wasn't until Pan's Labyrinth in 06 that he decided, like, okay, I'm going to kind of jump from the franchise stuff and I'm going to make a real serious dark movie with a dark script. Yeah. And I believe, if I remember correctly, Pan's Labyrinth was nominated for Best Picture. I can't speak on that. You would know better than I'm I would. I'm going to look it up while we talk here, but I'm pretty sure it was. And this was something that I talked about a little bit on our Hellboy episode, and it's no slight. I mean, I, I come from a first-generation Korean to American mother and my father, India, to America. So, you know, one thing that my mom doesn't get a lot is super sarcastic and super dry humor. Yeah. She just doesn't translate well. And, you know, I talked a little bit on AMA about how, you know, when The Office became super popular in America, a lot of Americans went back and watched The British Office, and they just couldn't stomach it. It was too awkward for them. Yeah. So my point behind this diet, or this, this what I'm rambling essentially, is that comedy is different in every culture, and especially language barriers can add to that 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 gap. Right. And Guillermo's language barrier, I believe his comedy just doesn't hit the way that he wants it to in Hellboy, in in Pacific Rim. But when I watch The Orphanage, when I watch Pan's Labyrinth, yeah. you know, movies that are in his native tongue that he is, he, you know, he wrote Pan's Labyrinth, I right. believe, right? I believe so, yeah. And, and, you know, The Orphanage, anytime someone's a producer of that scale, you've got to imagine they have a ton. Their, their fingers are definitely in That's that. That's why Immortal Engines was so good. Yes. No. <laughs> it was horrible. Peter Jackson, I hate you. Um, but that speaks on James Cameron and why Alita wasn't as bad. Um, I actually really liked Alita. So yeah. my point, though, behind this is that I totally forgot my point. Guillermo del Toro talking about film, talking about movies. Producer. He works producer. best when he's producing films. Oh, films, his, yeah. yeah. So – Pan's Labyrinth was the first time in American cinema where he paid really, really close attention to something that I felt like he was just batting 100. Well, it was his. It was perfect. I mean, that's the thing. Is I, I just looked. It was not nominated for Best Picture. And, of course, because I forgot, this is before the expansion. So it's five oh, movies. right, right. But I got six Oscar nominations, including music, makeup, cinematography, writing. Foreign? Uh, foreign language. Yeah. So a, a lot of the categories that, you know, pre-2008 genre movies would get, they you know, you don't often see in the, in the pre-2009 expansion very many movies uh, outside of your traditional drama getting thrown in there. Um, but that is definitely the breakthrough moment. And I would argue that Pan's Labyrinth in 2006 has the same effect, we'll talk about it a little later, that Children of Men had for Quaron, where it becomes this sort of like bastion of quality by an underrated filmmaker. That, yes. that real film fans pay attention to Pan's and they go, oh, that's one of my favorite movies. It's so beautiful. It's so crazy looking. It's such so dark and interesting. Um, that's the movie. It's not Blade 2. It's not Hellboy. No. He got put on the map as a credible director with Pan's, but he got put on the map as a bankable director with Blade 2 and Hellboy. Right, right. So that's kind of where his career takes a turn. And then interestingly enough, between 2006 and 2013, he only makes one movie. And it's Hellboy 2. Yeah. And, and Hellboy 2 has beautiful monster stuff. Yeah. It has, it has really beautiful moments, too. Like, really, really great. Again, like, we talk about love stories and how great Shape of Water is, and we talk about love and the monsters coming together perfectly. Hellboy 2 felt like his, his first attempt at really figuring this out. But he spent too much time on his comedy and a little bit too much time on, like, 
goofy monsters as yeah. opposed to badass monsters. And then the funny part is Hellboy 2, the people that love Hellboy 2, they love Pacific Rim even more. Yes. Because they're like, okay, the, the, the dumb comedy meets like big monsters and crazy nonsense. Like, okay, now it's just going to be big robots fighting. Right. Like, sure. Like, <laughs> do we care that Charlie Hunnam cannot act? No, I can't <laughs> act. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and this actually speaks on our, when our, I walked into the interview with Guillermo del Toro. He told he, me Ron Perlman had suggested <laughs> me, which I guess is actually true. And uh, line reading for Charlie Hunnam, Mako. We are not drift compatible. Excellent, your cast. Your cast. Who's that? That's not Guillermo. I don't know. It's a casting director. <laughs> it's a, cast, it's cast, a cast, British cast. casting director. I just made it up right now. <laughs> so he goes on and he does Pacific Rim in 2013. He does not do the second Pacific Rim, which I think are, is arguably worse. Um, De- definitely worse. Much second worse. Pacific Rim is a very bad, bad movie. Good movie. Uh, he does Crimson Peak in 2015, and then he does The Shape of Water in 2017. And right now he's working on Pinocchio, which I personally think he could either – I, I think he can knock it out of the park, and I hope he does. He's also attached to this Michael Mann documentary, which I've heard about forever, and I've always wanted to. I've I've been in the same room as as Guillermo like three times for different interviews, and each time for one reason or another, I haven't gotten to talk to him. Right, always wanted to, and uh, that's the thing I would ask him about because growing up, Michael Mann was my favorite director for a very long time. Yeah, I've, and I, if he's gonna make a friggin' documentary about the guy, he must love the guy. Like I would just nerd out for as long as he would talk to me, Michael Mann. And I would love to talk, or I would love to watch this documentary on Michael Mann from Guillermo to see like what he pulls from Michael Mann's direct because their direction styles are very different. Yeah, like Spe- astronomically different. Speaking of which, just because like I, if not now, when the, when the F am I going to actually talk about this? But speaking of heat and geeking out, yeah. I actually got to interview Dennis Haysbert finally. Oh yeah, you got to tell the story. I, I love finally this. got yeah. to interview him. And so last week or two weeks ago for the movie Breakthrough that comes out this weekend, um, he's like the doctor in the movie, and some probably you guys don't know who Dennis Haysbert is. He's the guy that. Put yourself in good hands. Yeah, like he's, he's Allstate. The Allstate guy, he's the president from 24. He's the driver that gets recruited in the big bank robbery in Heat by Neil McCauley, by De Niro. And there's this one line delivery in that movie where he's sitting at the bar after a day of work at this diner. He's next con. Um, and his girlfriend walks up and she's like, I know it's hard, baby, but can you handle it? And he's like, and he's like, there's not a hard time invented that I cannot handle. And he like says it like it's that. It's like Shakespearean it's for weird. some reason. I've always noticed that it's always stuck out, stood, out, uh, stood out to me and like – I've just always wondered, like, what was he thinking? I want to ask this guy this because that's the take they chose. And so in this interview for Breakthrough, it's like him and Mike Coulter, Luke Cage, and we're talking about other stuff. For whatever reason, I called them Fly in the interview. I was really embarrassed. Not sure why I said it. They made fun of you. Yeah. <laughs> they just – worse. They just didn't say anything. <laughs> they just didn't say anything. It was even worse. <laughs> kind of like, like when you said Fly and they were like <laughs> – This interview's over, sir. Um, I was like, why did I say that? Um, but uh, we talked about some other stuff. And then I was like, look, Dennis, I've, I've wanted to ask you this for years. Uh, it's a specific question about Heat. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. He's like, okay, okay. I was like, there's this moment in Heat. You say this line. And he's like totally listening. He's like, is this guy really – he's actually, going this deep yeah. in the tank? And I do exactly that. And he's like, it's funny you should ask me that. Cause, and you guys can go watch it on Red Carpet Report. But he's like, it's funny you should ask me that. You know, I was actually three sheets to the wind. I, I never drink – uh, on set, uh, I, I only had one, but I, I decided to drink that day for this one moment, this one character, and I just – it was in me, and I just had felt this, like, feeling of, like, I could accomplish anything. So I really wanted right. to kind of give it that flair, and I was like, wow, that's really specific. That's friggin' awesome. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I, lo- I love that he was drunk, and he's like, that's what just came out of my mouth. Yeah. <laughs> that's what happened. It's pretty cool. So anyway, that's my uh, tangent on the Michael Mann heat uh, conversation. But I think so, the only interesting thing about this is Crimson Peak. That's the one – Yeah, that is the one interesting one, right? I've never seen it. I, it's it's – it's, Pretty gnarly. You've seen it, it from what I remember. I don't actually don't really remember it. I, I think I've seen it. What, Michael, have you seen Crimson Peak or no? Uh, 
don't remember offhand if I have or not. It's like the I think it's like Jared Leto, Tom Hiddleston, maybe, and like oh, someone else. It's I'm like a something else. weird gothic horror movie from 2015. Is it in the jungle? No, I don't think so. I have no idea what it is. I I remember it coming out. I remember like. This is one of the only times in my life that I wish John Rocco was in the room. So I'm sure he'd have something to say about it. <laughs> Crimson Peak, I hate both of you. <laughs> Crimson Peak, you bastards. Um, and I just – that movie came and went. It was like after the success of Pacific Rim and the obvious success of Shape of Water, it's just the movie that came out in the middle. Yeah, and I don't really remember – what do you get over there, Michael? You got anything or no? I'm looking at – I remember seeing the trailer. Who's in it? Um – I know Hiddleston, I'm pretty sure. I thought Leto, I thought like maybe like... Uh, Hiddleston, Jessica Chastain, Charlie Jessica Hunnam. Chastain. Charlie Hunnam. Am I wrong about one of those guys? Is, is uh, Leto not, not in it? I don't think so. Just no. keep using Charlie Hunnam, Guillermo. He's <laughs> your muse. He's great. Uh, He's your yeah. muse. He's your muse. <laughs> yeah, never seen it. Um, but you did mention Quaron, so I think it's a good time to go and move over to Quaron. Yeah. What's interesting is because all three of these guys kind of did the same thing around the same time. So 2006 was actually the moment for both Quaron and and uh, Del Toro, in my mind. And I actually think, uh, we'll get to Inaritu in a minute, but in 2006 is when Cuaron does Children of Men. Now, he had already done A Little Princess in 95, Great Expectations in 98, and Itu Mama Tambien in 2001. Now, those three, um, I remember watching Great Expectations in school. I watched it for like a college lit class. Yeah. And I remember it being good and a little darker than I thought it was going to be. I remember De Niro, De Niro being kind of creepy in it because he's like the, the, okay. the convict. Never seen it, yeah. Um, but yeah, it was it was just fine. It was it was you know I, I could probably revisit it because I was a kid when I watched or like it. you can see the same pathway here. Yes, because it's the same thing. They both again, it's like you you get some some smaller budget movies. You get a little bit of critical acclaim. No one's paying attention. You show them your bankable. Yep. That's what that's what Del Toro does with with Blade Two and also with Hellboy. And I think this is where. So do you think it's with Great Expectations? You think it's Harry Potter? It's Harry Potter. Yeah, because Azkaban. It's the third Harry Potter film. It's usually remembered and referenced by people as the film that makes that takes the turn in that franchise of being like a silly kids franchise to a little darker. Okay. Um, it's a little more interesting. Now, I have seen every one of these movies, but I think they're stupid. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I've seen every one of these movies, but um, I think they're kind of stupid. Just kidding. Um, no, I, I have to say that because I haven't watched any of them. I refuse to watch Harry Potter movies. I just won't do it. I don't care, and I never will. I've seen them all. I do remember this movie having a different tone, and it's, it's a good movie. Honestly, I would like to watch these all again because they've become... Harry Potter is the closest thing in our lifetime to Star Wars in terms of its, like... In terms of its like actual franchise impact on a generation, yeah, people regard it in the same way. There's a friggin' theme there's park so at Universal about it. Yeah, like, it's not the same as Lord of the Rings. No, yeah. it, it's a it's an actual like franchise. Like it it's had a, almost a decade. People grew up on it. Like they, people in their 30s still go to Disneyland and drink butterbeer and want the wand to pick them. Yes, you it's, know because. <laughs> I did the butterbeer thing, by the way. <laughs> I did the butterbeer and the wand. <laughs> I put a lot of whiskey in my butterbeer. I've never done either of them. It's like if you imagine just like if you took a stick of butter, you rubbed sugar all over it, and you melted it into beer. It sounds delicious. <laughs> and then you took any alcohol out of it. That's that's butterbeer. <laughs> it's just uh, you lost me at the end. <laughs> so I just like bought it, dumped half in the garbage, and got like four shots of whiskey and just dumped them all in. Was it awesome then? Uh, I was like drunk, then sick, then really sick. Oh yeah, because it's way too much so sugar. So much fat. sugar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it was interesting. Did the wand pick you, or did... the wand was like that guy's drunk? I was vomiting. <laughs> oh no, no, no! I'm forgetting the best part of the story. Oh, this is great because I did exactly what I'm talking about, and I got to the front of the line, and like the you know, it's like I was like, oh, there's no line on this ride. I get to the front of the line, and they're like, you can't take that on the ride, sir. You're gonna have oh, to chug. You're gonna have to it. chug it. <laughs> you want to come on the ride? So now I chugged like three quarters of it, and threw the rest away, and I was so sick afterwards. My favorite thing is to. Think Think of that deconstructed. 
yeah. is basically you just drinking a half glass full of whiskey, taking a bite out of a stick of butter, and then chasing it with a spoonful of sugar. Yeah, that's what it was. <laughs> that's exactly. And you're forgetting the packet and then chugging a bunch of water. Right. Just sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> this is, this is like, I didn't vomit, but um, so so yeah. That's uh, that's Quaron. That's Ben. <laughs> yeah, so that's Quaron's career. <laughs> um, yeah. So he does Harry Potter, and that's what, like you say. That's the moment where he is okay. This guy's bankable. Now he gets to kind of run a little bit. Now he does uh, Perry Perry Jatem. Yeah, I, I've it, heard of it. I don't which know. I know is like pretty popular, but Children of Men is the big one. People well, love this movie. It's fascinating that this guy has the acclaim that he has, and he's done three movies in 12 years. Yeah. Like, I, I don't even know how that's... Like, the most remarkable achievement of any of these three guys is... Think about this. The lack of work or body of work? No, it's the success of Roma. Think about any director mm. you can think of. Literally anyone who is at the top of their game. I mean, you could take Denis Villeneuve, you could take Spielberg, you could take Nolan, you could... I mean, literally anyone. Mm-hmm. Jordan Peele. And you tell me this guy's going to make a black and white foreign language film that's two hours and 15 minutes, only available on a streaming platform, entirely with subtitles, no stars. Yes, not and, even no stars. No one you've ever heard of. And released in theaters in like six theaters. And it's going to be regarded as arguably the best movie of the year and a classic of its generation. How many times out of 100 does that work? Because I'm going to say that it fails just about 99 out of 100, no matter who that guy is. Okay, because, you know, you and I were prepping for this show, and we both had not seen Roma 24 hours ago. We, and we knew that if we did not see Roma and be able to speak on it, we would get crucified, which we would have deser- deservedly would have yeah. been so, you know. Watching that movie from the very first scene, from the very first yeah. the opening credit scene, you can tell that you're, you're witnessing something different. Yeah, and and I think what's so because you actually text me because I watched it before you like when does it pick up yeah. blah 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 a little bit, and I was like it, it doesn't really pick up it's just kind of a very slow long burn but you also said I can tell by the way that this movie has started to unfold that there's going to be a crazy thing that happens yeah. at some point it's going to get really really intense it's going to be dark and it's going to end and it's going to be kind of bleak and I was like that's very interesting because I felt the same way about twenty minutes in. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, I, I was texting you around that time as I was watching. The thing I noticed about Roma the most, and it's actually very different than Gravity and Children of Men, he um, he really takes a chance with Roma. It's it's a, it's kind of a once-in-a-lifetime kind of experience for a director to have that kind of success with this kind of movie. Yeah. I, I can't write that script. I don't know how that happens, but... Like the opening frames of Roma, like just like the the uh, geometric sort of the tiles on the floor that you're watching as the credits are all over them. And then mm-hmm. you cut to like the single shot of the girl going in the house and there's like a bike and a door and it's black and white. And you're like, oh, if I was like opening a book on my coffee table and this was like a still photograph right. by like an acclaimed photographer, this still shot, I would understand why I was here and it would why make sense. Why I won an award. It like looks like you're setting – you're like telling a story with the bike and the door and the – like – yeah, and that's what he is. He's a he's he's a true visionary. And that the thing that's so incredible about that is it's the visuals are so intriguing to a different effect than Del Toro's, right? Like his visuals are, are intriguing because you're like, oh, holy shit, I've never seen this before. Whereas you're watching Quaron work, same thing in Gravity, same thing in Children of Men, and you're like, I'm mesmerized and I don't know why. It's like it's like Quaron. It's like they're serene and like Del Toro, they're stimulating or yes. something. I don't know. It's like. And, and I'm so, a douchebag for saying that, but that's like no, no. I, I think that's fair. <laughs> and in 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 watching Roma, only he could execute that because with with how slow of a burn it is, with the fact that you don't know who any of these people are, you don't really care. But I was so deeply invested and yeah. entrenched in it, and I also was willing to put in the work. The first half an hour was worth of work of just like, all right, this you is have to be get kind the characters. You have to do. understand the relationships. You have to have yeah, yeah, all of it. And so I, I just think. 
he's the most sort of fascinating director because it almost feels in some ways like an accident. Like it's six years since Gravity. Gravity was like a moneymaker. Romo yeah. was not. So, it, But he won Best Director for his last two movies. Yeah. It, it, he's just – he feels almost too artistic to be as like greatly revered as he is. But you watch the movie. Roma is – it really is incredible. It, it, it is. Like, it's it's heartbreaking. It's beautiful. It's simple. It, it's not a complex story. It just is what it is. And uh, I, I just don't think anyone else in the world could have pulled it off at the time. Now, there's the third guy, Inaritu. Now, this if anyone in the world could pull it off, it might be him. Alejandro González Inaritu. Inaritu. Um, this is the guy of all of them who probably has the most visual technique. Uh, yeah. I, I would say Walcoron does have like he gets it like there are shots in children of men that are immaculate like 100%. roma is beautiful but in r2 puts entire like entire like sequences like the opening sequence to revenant is like and our one of our good buddies shot that yeah. and like he talked about it and like being there and filming it and, and staging it and how long it took him to shoot it he, he he'd studied for six months before even going over to calgary to even start beginning to set up this yeah and it's it's something else i mean it's crazy that movie is insanity like yeah, the the visuals in that movie, they're actually breathtaking. That is that is the only word you can use is you'll be watching it and you're like, holy shit, how did this, how is this, cap, how did you capture this? This yeah. is not real. You know? I would argue that of his movies, and so let's let's establish for the audience kind yeah. of who he is, because it's only in the last five years that he's really become a guy that people know. It's because his back-to-back films, The Revenant and Birdman, he won Best Director for both of um, one of which won Best Picture, Birdman. Yeah, and what's so interesting is is that I remember when Twenty One Grams and Babel came out. They, you know, respectively, they came out in two thousand um, <clears throat> two, or excuse me, two thousand three and two thousand six. And I remember both of them coming out and kind of being a moment. Twenty One Grams was actually a big moment because I don't know if it was because of my age. Everyone was like, "Did you know when you die?" This, and then everyone started looking into yeah, like how yeah, much yeah. people weighed right before they died. So there was this. There was actually a big moment in in culture where everyone paid attention to a movie that he'd done, but it wasn't because. He had done it. It was also like the cast. Like Sean yeah. Penn had won his Oscar that year in 03. So okay. either he hadn't he either hadn't won it yet or he was about to win it. Just come off Mystic. For Mystic River. Yep. And you have Benicio and he's only a couple years after traffic. So yep. he's still really in the prime of it. You've got Naomi Watts and Mulholland Drive is just a year or two earlier. She so, is so good in 21 grams. That's like her. I mean, that, like that era of these guys we're talking about, that's like you're seeing like all these guys in this really intense trailer. I remember we, we joke a lot about the movies that our parents took us to see, but my dad took me to see 21. Grams. Yeah, um, my, my mom and I probably went and saw like the re-release of Lion King. You probably went to, you probably saw, like Brother Bear. Yeah, probably same same <laughs> so, year. I think sounds good. Uh, sounds great, mom. Give or take. That's awesome, mom. <laughs> Can't wait. How about how about we go see uh, what's the day? What's the Shia LaBeouf surfing one? Oh, Surfs Up. <laughs> surfs Up. He's excellent. You probably watched the Surfs Up. I love Surfs Up. Yeah. So, uh, but I remember Twenty One Grams, and I remember you know being excited about it because I like the cast a lot and. You know, he had already done Amoros Peros, which was not um, – that was a, that was like the same kind of the breakthrough thing we're talking about in terms of artistic, mm-hmm. right? And then – but the funny thing about Inari 2 is that he doesn't have – I guess you could say it's Babel because of the, because of the actors involved. Right, have, or like Beautiful because Javier was in it, but that was like before – I mean that was right after Javier had won. I guess if you want to call it Babel, you can because it's 2006 Brad Pitt. So you're talking about Mr. and Mrs. Smith era, yeah. Brad and Angie. I mean, he is the most famous thing in the world. Biggest thing in the whole world and you're not making – you're not putting him in some like Mr. and Mrs. Smith. You're making him look like – Ugly and tattered, and Dirty. older. Yeah, he's got yeah. he's got Kate Blanchett who just won an Oscar, and like it's like oh, this is going to be a powerhouse movie. And Babel's just 
it's just fine. It's, fine. it's not like super memorable. I've never had any feeling to go watch it again. It like won some Oscars, but interestingly enough, his real breakthrough didn't actually come until Birdman and the Revenant. That's yeah. when he became who he is. Which is fascinating. Like why why? Why were why is everyone so obsessed with Birdman? I watched it again recently. I like it. It's fine. But it's not this movie that just blows my mind. Like everyone when it came out it blew their mind. I don't think people talk about it as much now as they did then. And I think it has the whole like self-referential La La Land thing. Hollywood loves movies about Hollywood. And that's like what Birdman is. But I love La La Land. You know yeah, what I mean? Right. But I mean people hate – people hate on La La Land today for the same reasons that you're asking why. Like it's right. – they don't get it. Like it's a – and I think – I'd have to watch Birdman again. I did see it the year it came out. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking it's – that year it was that or Boyhood. They were like the two front runners. Yeah, and I remember yeah. loving Boyhood. Yeah. Um, do you remember – do you remember when it came out? Do you remember how you felt about it? For Birdman? Yeah. I'm kind of in the same boat you are. I mean it's a good movie. It's fine. But yeah. I, it didn't you know, blow me away. Um, I would, some of the um, style choices, I guess, is what I remember more than the actual you know, plot narrative itself. I mean but, my favorite thing about it was just seeing Keaton in that position again and, and, and killing yeah. it. And I was like, okay, this is great. That means more Michael Keaton's going to happen in the future. I didn't even think about Enrique. Yeah, right. We, we was really happy it brought us to American Assassin. <laughs> Love that movie. Love that movie. Wish that was better. Um, um, but the but the Revenant is, but okay. I said this earlier. We on, have a you and I have a lot of thoughts about the Revenant. Yeah, and I actually uh, I wish we had more time today. But um, I said this earlier today. But the question I had is, despite the fact these guys have won five of the last six Oscars, I find this trio of acclaimed directors to be the least rewatchable trio, like working today. Like, and there's not like there's a lot of trios out there. But like, if you were to take. I don't know, three people that that account for that many awards for that much acclaim. Yeah. And you were to say, like, here's their careers. Do you think they're rewatchable? Like you're talking about you you are talking about a class of director that's like amazing. And I yes. don't find these guys' movies to be compelling. I don't want to watch them again. I don't care. The only one's Children of Men for me. I've watched Children of Men a bunch of times. It's very dark and bleak and, and it's it's pretty sad. I've seen it four times, which is that's, high for yeah, me. That's pretty good for you. I don't – like we did it on the show recently. It's the only reason I watched it again recently yeah. and I thought it was really good and I understood all the things that were great about but it. if you never watched it again in your life, you'd be I fine. don't care. Right. I don't need to watch it again. I'm the same way and I love these guys. I love the movies that they do. The, you know, The last thing the interview did is The Revenant and The Revenant's funny because we have a bit of a sour taste in our mouth because of The Revenant and some of the, the dramatic yeah, scenes behind that the went scenes behind the heard, scenes. Yeah. Um, but I – I, I've watched Birdman twice. Uh, I've seen any other film in Interior 2's filmography once. Um, actually, I've seen Revenant twice. Same thing with, with Quaron. I've only seen Children of Men more than once. Everything else I've only seen the one time. It's just crazy. So I think the question to ask here is we've kind of gone through the careers. And so to, to, to wrap the last part of the show up, we have some questions that we kind of want to ask about these guys. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, the segment of the show. We're going to do some rapid fire questions about the careers of Alejandro Gonzalez and Ari too, Alfonso Quaron and Guillermo del Toro. Uh, and I think the first question is some of these are from the great directors of the future episode yeah. that we did a few weeks ago. Who has most likely already peaked? What do you think? Uh, and, and Michael, feel free to jump in on this if you want. Just put your hand up because I'd love to know what you think. Yeah, any one of them. I, I think that the person that has, has most likely already peaked, unfortunately for me, I think is, is Cuaron. Uh, the reason why is because of what you said. It's what he did with Gravity and it's what he did with Roma more than anything. I think Roma is one of those things where that movie wouldn't have even been talked about for Best Picture back in the day. It would have been a foreign language film talked about. No one would have probably seen it because it would have been straight to DVD or whatever. You know, It wouldn't have even been in Oscar contention because it didn't get a theatrical release. So um, 
That being said, I think he totally deserves Best Director this last year after finally watching it. I think that he's done such great work with Gravity and Children of Men. Children of Men is probably my favorite thing out of all three of their filmographies. Yeah, yeah. So I just can't imagine him doing it again or doing doing better than he already has. I think it's – I agree with you. He's the answer. And the reason it's an easy answer is because how can you actually argue somebody hasn't peaked when they win Best Director for two movies in a row and in all reality he doesn't – like Del Toro is going to keep making commercial movies, so he'll keep getting jobs. His yeah. movies make money. He's not like, going to win Best Director for Pinocchio. No, but he'll keep getting big jobs because like that's just who he is. He he likes making big popcorn stuff. So he'll if he wants to work in America for thirty more years, he will. And his movies are more palatable to the general audience. And I think I think that Poirot's acclaim is almost more by accident than NRA 2s You the 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 uh, care that goes into every frame by NRA two is so evident. When you watch his movies, it's hard to imagine him making a movie that's not going to get like a crazy amount of hype. And and also, you look at what you know he's done. It took him five years to go from Gravity, which is Bullock and Clooney, yeah, two of the biggest of all time. And he's like, I don't need, I don't need famous people. Fuck him. Five years from now, I'll put out a movie with no one you've ever heard of. And how long is it going to be till his next movie? Exactly. And, and where, people like people don't like Roma. People critics like Roma. Right, people right. watched it for that reason, but nobody I know watched Roma just like to watch a movie. And you look at you look at Del Toro, and he's kind of done the same thing. Obviously, Shape of Water, he uses people that are that are pretty relevant, but not super relevant. You know, Shannon and and uh, and our boy, who I absolutely yeah. love. Uh, why can't I think of his name? Richard. Richard. Oh, Richard. Uh, Richard Jenkins. Richard Jenkins. Yeah. Um, Enrique is the one playing the game. Yeah. He uses Leo. He uses Keaton. He uses Edward Norton. He uses Tom Hardy. He yeah. uses Domhnall Gleeson. He uses the biggest names in the world or about to be because you got to play the game if you want to get people in the theater. You got to sell tickets. So uh, I think I, I I think we're in, we're in agreement on that. The the next thing that you had, which I think is really cool, is which franchise do we want them to direct? Any film franchise that has happened or, or will happen or has Yeah, happened. we'll say like a relatively major franchise, like a like a tentpole franchise. So okay. I think not like not like Hellboy, because that's like pretty fringe, but you know, like your Star Wars, your MCUs, your things like that. And I think uh my answer for Del Toro Or is it just is it any of them? Or it's all of them. We can do each of them. I think it's an interesting conversation because I'd love okay. to know what the people I, I leave your thoughts in the comments, guys, if you agree or disagree. I think this is a, f- a fun conversation to have. Um Del Toro, I'm going to say that I would love to see Guillermo Del Toro direct a Doctor Strange movie, oh. but not write it. I don't want him writing it. Yeah. I just want him directing it. I want them to give him free reign creatively to design the monsters and the things in the movie practically. I want to see some practical monsters. I want like I, – I want that almost like macabre sort of like sci-fi – edge that you get in the cosmic stuff with right. Doctor Strange to be handled by somebody like Del Toro. I think that would be so friggin' cool. I'm in the exact same boat, but I'm going to go X-Men instead of Doctor Strange. With, oh, with, interesting. The, the new X-Men films is coming out with a Dark Phoenix. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. If, if you, again, you get someone that is writing with him to do to work on the comedy, but you get him to do all the great effects, the yeah. badass fights. Like, have him, instead of doing monsters, do villains that are, like, more humanoid. Yeah. I think it could be so cool to see something, like, on the fringe. I mean, the other thing that I'd really like to see would be, like, a Star Trek movie. Interesting. Because he would get to play in space a lot. Yeah. I just don't think Star Trek's really going to go anywhere right now, film-wise. I, w- I would love to see Quaron direct a James Bond movie. Damn it! That's mine! Yeah. I literally have it written down right here. Quaron Bond. 100%. Be- because what I like about it, maybe you agree with me, is... So, if I remember correctly, Martin Campbell did... Uh, Casino Royale, right? Yep. And so Casino is great, and he like he brings a lot of the darkness for Bond. But like, what I would love to see, and this would be hard to, for me to imagine them actually getting behind. Right. Um, but I would love to see Quaron go like 
dark, slow, artistic Bond. Like, not campy. Same. None of that English weird, like, tongue-in-cheek shit that they Same, do now. dude. Ditch all of it. Give me, like, a very, very, very dark, slow, intense... Think like the best parts of Casino Royale, but done by Alfonso Cuarón. And give me that as a sequel. Give me, give me Casino Royale, and then that film next instead of what we actually got. Because I will say Daniel Craig's fall. For, I mean, not even it's not even his fault. It's the yeah. films that he's been in since how great Casino Royale was. Yeah, and how bad Spectre was. It's just kind of a nightmare. Yeah, I agree. Um, Inaritu's tough for me. I'm trying to think of like what actual thing. I, I think for me, and this is kind of a, a weird left turn. I would love to see him direct actually a True Detective series. Interesting. I think he could do really great with that. He would get some of those really beautiful visuals that we got in season one. Yeah. And we know he knows how to work with great directors. You saw what he did with Hardy and Leo in Revenant. I mean, obviously you're working with the yeah. highest caliber of actors right there. But I think if you take him and put him in something like that, it'd be super dark. You'd get beautiful, gnarly shots like you did in season one. Yeah. I think he could knock it out of the park. So, okay, if we're, you're going to go TV series, I'll kind of take a left turn a little. It's not technically a franchise, but I would love to see him do a uh, music biopic in the vein of in the vein of Rocket Man or okay. Bohemian Rhapsody. I would love him to take on uh, some incredibly famous musician or band, um, like the Led Zeppelin story or something right. crazy like that, and do a full like two and a half hour epic, like fully incorporating his visual talent, his music, his sense of rhythm, all the stuff that made Birdman so cool, I think would be so badass. Yeah. And RE2 could really do a good job with that. I really like that. Yeah. That's good. Do we miss anything? We're all good, Michael? All right. All right. So I think uh, I think the last thing, do we want to just do the last one? I think or the last one's do... pretty important. I, I think a lot of these other questions, we you know, we don't have to answer all of them. Um, I think the, the most important one is that who, who will be the most iconic director? And, and let me define this because I think it's a really important distinction that we, we make clear here. Yeah, 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 definitely. Because we had a long conversation about what this truly means. You know, it's, imagine you're in 1985. And at this point, it's been 10 years since Coppola's won two best pictures in a row for, you know, for The Godfather. And he's, he's done Apocalypse now. And, you know, you've, you've got George Lucas and he's done his whole trilogy. He's got Star Wars. You know, the third Star Wars just come out a couple years earlier. He's a visionary. You know, De Palma at that point has just done Scarface. You know, he's, he made Carrie. He's yeah. like, right, these guys are all best best friends you know and then you've got scorsese who at that point has now done all these de niro movies and raging bull and right there's a group of directors that all kind of knew each other at that moment at that time that if you flash forward you know spielberg i think is, is the last one i'm mentioning uh you flash forward 30 years and how are these guys you know regarded and i think right. it's i can't remember if scorsese is part of that group i feel like he is he is right he is, yeah. yeah yeah and uh you flash forward and it's like, who is the defining iconic director? And it's like, of those guys, well, Spielberg and Scorsese are are right. kind of in a class of their own at this point. Yeah. Where Coppola's a little behind them because he stopped making relevant movies. You can argue that Lucas and De Palma round out the bottom of that group in some way just because Lucas wasn't really a great director and it was proven yeah. as things went on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And De Palma stopped making good movies a long time ago. <laughs> you hate Brian yeah. De Palma. <laughs> but at the time, they were kind of all on the same footing, which is where yes. these guys are now. So the question we have is... In 20 years, who will be regarded as the most iconic director of his generation of these three guys? Who is the best and who will be the worst? So I'm going to answer, I'm going to answer both questions. I'm going to answer who my favorite is. My favorite is Quaron. I truly believe he is the, the best of the three in the sense of the movies that I like to watch. Children of Man, if he could do movies like that, movies like Gravity, movies like Roman for the rest of his career, I would be so happy to keep watching him. So he's my favorite. I agree. Same, same thing. I, he's also my favorite. However, Inaritu, like I said, he's just 
he's playing the game better. He's making movies in the right direction. Now, Shape of Water was great, but it was also, I don't think as many people were all up in arms when Revenant won Best Picture as they were when Shape of Water won Best Picture. A lot of people talk about movies as like a, a, a softcore porno with a woman hooking up with a fish, which I think is not what it is at all. And I think yeah. that's one of the dumbest ways to describe it. But it's the idea that that isn't appealing to the general audience. Whereas right. Revenant, a revenge story about a man hunting a, a, another man that, that killed his son. Yeah, yeah. That after he gets attacked by a bear. That's just something that we're kind of like, okay, yeah. I, I can get on board I can get with a, this. Despite the fact that it's slow. Well, it didn't – careful distinction. Uh, you mean Best Director, when he won Best Director for it. Yes, yes, sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah not yeah. Best Picture. Um, I, I agree with you. I think that's fair. And I, I actually think, as I mentioned a second ago, the attention to detail leads me to believe that I think NRE2 will go down as the – I think in 20 years, given the tools to make more movies, I think he will go down as the guy. It could be Cuaron. It's definitely not Del Toro. Really? You think? Um, you think? No. I see. I actually think Del Toro would maybe be second then to to make it. But you think he's? You think he's just gonna, not going to do it? I just think like you look at somebody like somebody who has some credibility, but then over a long period of time starts just making stuff that's like, wow, okay, well, like that. Or those early things that like really captured this well are not quite as good as I thought they were. Like John right. Singleton's a great example. Like Boys in the Hood, great movie for its time, really makes an impact. You know, John Singleton keeps making movies. He keeps working on projects and like. They start to feel just kind of like derivative with the same DNA. Now, granted, he doesn't have a shape of water 20 years after he makes his first movie. But, like, by the time Baby Boy comes out, it's like, oh, okay, I don't know if this guy actually was on to something as much as we thought. Right. This is not quite what I thought it was. And I think a little bit with Del Toro, if he makes enough of the types of movies that he likes making, I think he's going to – he'll. It's all it's going to take for Guillermo Del Toro to, like, sort of lose his cred is, like, he makes two, like, extremely subpar B-level sci-fi movies that no one cares about. Maybe one's an epic, one's a low budge. Can't get the budget, and he he becomes a guy that had a really like a heyday, yeah, and not as much anymore. And I think the thing that you got to remember with El Toro, for for the most part, at least for me, is when I talk about, him, I'm like, oh yeah, but he did Pan's Labyrinth. That was 13 years ago. He swung know? for the fences with Shape of Water, but imagine if Shape of Water hadn't won awards and hadn't made money, right? Then what the hell are you doing? Then, then, that, then he's just done. Then that movie's a swing and a miss. And he doesn't get Pinocchio. Yeah, uh, yeah, and with Inari too. I mean, yeah, it just. It just feels like, and honestly, he might be my least favorite person of the three from what I from what I've gathered. Yeah, um, but I just think he's got it. I think he's got it figured out. I you know I think twenty one grams was kind of like the very beginning. He he was caught too much in the stylization and the non linear storytelling, and it feels like once he hits Birdman and he hits Revenant, it just seems like he's doing he's playing the game of Hollywood and he's doing it better than almost anyone else is. Yeah, he's also just the guy that like. I mean, honestly, if any one of them gets an all star cast. I'm paying attention because I think these yeah. guys are all kind of geniuses in their own right. 100%. But, like, if you tell me that Hugh Jackman is starring aside, alongside Hugh Jackman, you know, <laughs> if, you tell me, if, you, if you tell me that it's like, you know, you, taste, you take Brad Pitt and Leo and you Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but it's directed by NRA2, not Quentin, yeah. that's the movie where I'm like, oh, my God, I have to watch this. This right. is going to be unreal. Whereas I, if I hear Del Toro's directing, I'm like, uh, I don't know what to think. Yeah. yeah. And if I hear Quar- Quaron's directing, I'm also like, weird. Yeah. I'm like, I'm like that sounds cool. Yeah, really but, like, cool. I hope it's good, bro, because you yeah. don't make movies except every five years. So if this is a miss, <laughs> yeah. like, you're off the radar. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. true. And, and Inaritu is just in the thick of it right now. So, um, yeah, I, I think that, that sums it up for me. Inaritu is the person who I think is going to be the most iconic in 25 years. Cuaron is my personal favorite at the time right now. And honestly, for me, Del Toro is the one I could live without. 
Uh, I rarely does this happen, but I completely and totally share your sentiments. I'm in a hundred percent agreement. I, I don't I don't differ at all there. So we would love to know what you guys think. Uh, I imagine Del Toro is probably a lot of people's favorite. Yeah, so definitely. leave your thoughts below in the comments, guys. Let us know what you think. Tweet at us if you want a more direct uh, level of contact. You can find me at Ben Bateman Media. You can find me at Andrew Guy. You can find the show at Team Action Show. That is run by our good friend Matthew Kearns. Please, please, please go to YouTube.com/slash Action Industries and subscribe to watch the full episode of this show available this coming Tuesday. Yeah, please, guys. Uh, all, all the follows, all the subscribes, it's what helps us keep doing this thing. Thanks to Collider for providing us with the space to do the show as per usual. Um, and check out patreon.com slash teamaction. We have a, a full reaction video to uh, the Schmodown match in Chicago that just happened that I played in. It was live for a 1,000 people. Andrew and I are going to be doing a behind-the-scenes reaction um, on our Patreon coming out later this week after the match drops. So be sure to check that out if you guys want to know what's going on with that whole thing and, and the storyline and Andrew being a traitor. Uh, okay, first of all, you're a traitor and I hate you. Guys, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for watching. Please, please, please let us know your thoughts in the comments below. Michael, thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you all next week. Bye, guys. Stay little chico, pit bull, Mr. 305, better said Mr. Worldwide, and I'm here to tell you about my new podcast, From Negative to Positive, brought to you by my friends over at State Farm. I believe that to have success, you got to play the game, so that the game doesn't play you. You know, the biggest risk you take is not taking one. It's very important that you make sure that you make the most out of your money, especially when it comes to insurance. State Farm offers surprisingly great rates. They have great agents standing by helping you personalize your coverage. All this is backed up by award-winning, easy-to-use technology. It's a great price with an even greater service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Does anybody want breakfast? Guys, let's go. I'm leaving for McDonald's in five seconds. Why do you start that? The Breakfast Stampede Meal. It's only at McDonald's, where there's a meal for every morning. And nothing says morning like a classic sausage McMuffin with egg. Right now, get this all-time favorite for just 2 bucks on the one 2 3 menu. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Napa know-how. This month, Napa's got all kinds of motor oil deals that can save you some serious cash. Like a 5-quart jug of Napa Full Synthetic Motor Oil for just $16.49. With savings like that, you may start feeling like a VIP. But don't let it go to your head. These oil deals are for everyone. Quality parts, helpful people. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. General States pricing. Sales prices not include applicable state local taxes or recycling fees. Offer ends 831.20.